Well, I was sitting there this morning and looking at all the fans and thinking that you guys and the AC folks just allowed this to happen so that I could feel more at home. I know that that's probably how you all feel. The difference would be, though, if I were going to be more at home, all your benches would be converted to bamboo seats. And those would be more uncomfortable and you'd have to pay better attention. So just be thankful that we're in this position and uh, not with more disadvantages or discomforts. But it's good to be here with you this morning. And this morning I confess to you that I chose this passage particularly because I, I seek regularly, and you may this may even surprise you, but I seek regularly to answer a frequent question that I have in my heart, which is a, a question... Uh, that I hear Paul addressing in Philippians chapter 3, how is it that we as Christians press on without regrets? How do we press on without regrets? I, I was in Australia recently with a colleague, a longtime ministry colleague, and he and I were talking together about the context where we have made significant investments in our lives. And uh, we together named 10 significant different settings where we have labored and all of those over the course of multiple years. So from Mongolia to Venezuela to Papua New Guinea to Texas to Colombia to Florida to India to Mexico to Australia to Arkansas. And as we reflected on those 10 contexts between us, we realized that in almost every instance, there's some sense in which we bear an emotional or relational disappointment as we exit that setting. Now, just to be positive, not so far in Arkansas, so no worries here, okay? But my track record has indicated that that's been the case many times. And, you know, we conceded together that, um, that there's a way in which life weighs on us, burdens us, and causes us to tend toward looking back with regret or disappointment. You know, he, he and I both got kicked out of Venezuela together. Uh, that's a joy to share that privilege together. He was one who actually helped to try to negotiate the release of two missionaries who had been kidnapped by FARC guerrillas, and they ended up being killed in Colombia. We both uh, left Mexico in similar kinds of circumstances together. And, you know, we, we talked and shared with one another, and we're seeking to encourage each other with this kind of question, how is it that we... As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, press on without regret. As life-weathered individuals, that's how I feel at this point, how do we not look backward and forward without wistfully wondering what life could be like if we'd made different decisions, if we were different people, if sometimes we knew different people, if um, we knew the right people, right? If we knew then what we know now, without letting past failures or future fears create paralysis in the present without our disappointments or potential disappointments causing us to shut down, to coast, to throw up our hands, to distract us. You know, sometimes I think I wouldn't mind a lifetime of mowing straight lines of grass or uh, cooking brisket full time. That could be a good gig, right? Or growing vegetables even. That could be fun. But to, to the tendency that I feel at times to stop tri striving, to stop, stop investing, to cease spiritual growth and development as an activity. And I'll just tell you, now, as if you think that young people in the room, if you think that only applies to the elderly among us, I would consider myself one of those. You need to keep in mind that our world system today puts a lot of pressure on you to submit to this kind of a mindset. It's amazing to me that in our cultural environment, if uh, I saw a poll recently that was taken among young people, and at least, now this is astounding to me, guys, sorry, but 86% of young people today have some desire to be a social media influencer. 86%. What realm of reality are we living in? Okay? What is it? about all that's right and reasonable in the world that thinks that that is a sensical way to demonstrate our integrity as Christians, right? But that, that current cultural pressure that we feel would call you a fool for believing what God says about your value and your identity and your purpose, about meaning, um, wants us to avoid responsibility. You know, I've, I've learned the acronym FOMO, right? 
fear of missing out. That, that needs to be a way of life, the world tells you, for young people. We should run toward attention-grabbing notoriety and away from anything that would define us, that would settle us, that would create anonymity. And so it's no wonder to me, then, that in our cultural milieu, that we grow frustrated, cynical, disappointed when we compare ourselves, we compare our relationships, we compare talents and deficiencies and weaknesses and privileges and influences and online profile and weaknesses with those of people around us. So I, I'm challenging you to understand that context this morning as uh, I, I ask myself the question regularly, sometimes at three and four in the morning, what is it about life that keeps my heart buoyant? What in the scriptures keeps my heart floating upright? What, what is it that helps me to meaningfully and purposefully live without regret? And uh, I, I want you to be asking yourself that same question as we turn to Philippians 3. If you want to turn there, we're going to be in Philippians 3. Let's dialogue with Paul this morning, because we find in Paul a man who is answering that kind of question in a unique way. Now, Paul, as you know, is a, is a serious challenge for us because of his purposed uh, view of the world, his worldview. In cross-cultural terms, we think about worldviews as sets of, of lenses through which we interpret our life, the kinds of glasses that we wear as we look for answers in life. And Paul was a man who lived with a specific worldview. A resurrection worldview is what I'm going to describe for you this morning. Now, before we begin reading in Philippians 3, let's find our place in this letter. It's hard to jump into the middle of a context of a letter without setting context. Paul is now, as he writes Philippians, probably the last of his prison epistles during his first stay in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. In 62 AD, he's probably a man in his mid-50s, and he has cataloged many sufferings of life. So this is a gospel-saturated thank-you letter that Paul is writing from prison to the church in Philippi, the church that he planted there through Lydia and the Philippian jailer in his second journey. And in spite of that prison predicament, Paul is resounding in this letter with, you know the word, joy. That's a word that's used more than 20 times in the letter. Paul clusters other jewels of Christian faith and identity around the word joy, like humility and unity and fellowship and suffering and courage and gratitude. So all of that gospel-oriented focus of Paul through the lens of joy, and I, I found it instructive to realize that in this book that would only take us 14 minutes to read, if we read it out loud, that Paul references or mentions the person of Christ 50 times. 50 times. Now, I don't know, other than reading the book of Philippians, if I've ever mentioned the name of Christ 50 times in 14 minutes. But that's the centerpiece of Paul's thank you letter to the Philippian church. In chapter 1... He says that joy comes through identifying with the humility of Christ, or with, I'm sorry, with the, with the suffering of Christ. In chapter 2, joy comes through identifying with the humility of Christ. In chapter 3, joy comes through rejecting all other dependencies in order to know and gain the resurrected Christ. That's where we'll be today. And in chapter 4, joy comes through guarding one's heart and mind in Christ. And so we're going to pick up in that joy-based, Christ-based context in chapter 3. If you want to look down in your Bible to chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in the middle part of verse 4 this morning as we continue to establish this worldview of the Apostle Paul, this Christ-centered, joy-filled, resurrection worldview. I'll read down to our context and make a few comments as we go. How is it that Paul describes us living lives without regret? Here's what he says in, in chapter uh, 3, verse 4, the second half. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul begins describing his pre-Christ advantages. 
his reasons for confidence if he were going to measure life according to the, the estimation of those around him. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, in verse 5, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's listing a set of advantages, categories that are world-based advantages and categories. But then we have this massively encouraging and extraordinary gospel contrast in verses 7 to 9. These are verses that are very familiar to most of us because he says there in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. These are pristine, glorious gospel truths in clear gospel words from Paul. Paul tells us, and he reflects on a background, that prior to his encounter with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, that he was one who trusted in his own his goodness, his own righteousness, based on his ethnic and religious and cultural and, and uh, personal merit. Paul was trying to earn the righteousness of God through his efforts. That may be you this morning. You may be one who still hasn't come to terms with Christ being your righteousness. But when Paul was confronted on that road in Acts chapter 9 with the blinding resurrection glory of Christ... He was knocked to the ground and Christ confirmed for Paul, convicted Paul that he was in spiritual darkness, that his good works and your good works and my good works, our good enoughness, our attempts to earn the favor of God, our our attempts to somehow merit God saving us, they're just, the word Paul uses there is refuse, it's garbage, it's worthlessness. And so, friends, if you are in the building today and you're hearing this message and you're grappling with the fact that you have not yet made that kind of decision to trust in the righteousness of Christ and not your own good works, then this is the point in the message where you need to be soberly assessing your situation. Because Paul himself says he's the chief of sinners in the book of 1 Timothy. He had to turn by faith in Christ to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for his sins as a a sufficient and complete payment for his sin. And so if you have not made that decision today, you will have a difficult time uh, applying the rest of the message that I share with you this morning. Because that's a, 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 a basis or a foundation that Paul describes that motivates the rest of what he has to say. And so challenge you, I challenge you this morning that you turn from a life of meaningless regret. If you want to live a life of regret, live a life apart from Christ. Turn to Christ for salvation. That's my encouragement. Because as we continue reading here in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, we're turning toward a a salvific view of, of life, of Christian life. Because Paul continues in verses 10 and 11, he says that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I know this would constitute a long introduction. I know that. But I feel that if we don't understand the basis by which Paul describes the advantages that he has in Christ, the implications of living without regret that emerge from a resurrection worldview, then we miss the forest for the trees. Because Paul knows the story. He knows that in the beginning of creation, God had chosen to relate to his own sons and daughters by breathing into them life. 
He knows that there was one in the garden after God gave the tree of life who wanted to steal life from God's children, who wanted to murder and kill and destroy. So Adam and Eve chose sin over trust in God. They chose a life that ended in death because they doubted God's goodness and his promises for them. So in the garden, God mercifully promises a redeemer who would come to restore life to them. And throughout the rest of the Bible, we have the account of God working that life out in this redemptive plan that would culminate in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has that background fully in mind, and so I want the context to be emphatic and clear. Paul is interpreting every experience of his life, his Christian life now, and even his pagan life as God called him to himself, through the fact of Christ's death and resurrection, restoring him to life with God, and redeeming his lived experience toward a future life with Christ. Paul wants to use every opportunity to display that resurrected Christ as the all-sufficient power for a joyful, vibrant, faith-filled, living righteousness in the present. So, just to be clear, again, this resurrection worldview was not Paul's public persona. It wasn't his Twitter handle. It wasn't his Facebook profile. It wasn't his wealth generation strategy. It wasn't his person, public relations management scheme. It was his basis for being... It was his totality, it was the core of his identity, it was his ambition, it was his obsession. The death and resurrection of Christ were hardwired permanently to Paul's transformed soul by virtue of the life of salvation. Friends, I find that massively convicting because I I, I ask myself frequently with that level of clarity, how is it that we live up to an aspiration like that? What kinds of implications does Paul draw out that would help us? So here we are. Here we are in verse 12. I'm going to give you three implications of Paul's resurrection worldview. Three implications of his worldview. And I know it took us a while to get here, but I felt like that context was important. Three implications of Paul's resurrection worldview that help me to assess and answer the question, how do I live life without regret? So let's now read verses 12 to 16 together and learn from Paul's perspective now. And, you know, what we see here, and we see this in other places in Paul's writings, is this metaphor that emerges of running a race. So there are various verbs and images that are used there. Paul is describing this maximum strenuous effort toward a goal or a prize. He has an expectation of inheriting the perfect knowledge and presence of Christ through this effort to run in light of the resurrection. So let's read verses 12 down to 16. See what we can glean in terms of implications here. Paul continues in verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, I'm going to get technical with you for one second. That's a translation that only the ESV uses. Every other translation I consulted render that verse differently, and I I would like to challenge the ESV translators on this. So here's how I think the verse should be rendered. If you look in others, you'll see this. Let me read it in a different translation. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So far, so good. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That, that use of a pronoun that I won't talk a lot about makes, gives the indication that we're pressing on grabbing hold of what Jesus did to grab hold of us first, to achieve that work for us first. And so Paul continues in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
And so we have two exhortations in 1516 on the basis of those implications. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So what three implications can we share together this morning of Paul's resurrection worldview that can help us to live lives without regret? To press on in the way that Paul describes. We find a first implication here in verse 12 and then also in verse 14 or verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 13. Verse 12 says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. So Paul is a man who knows he has not yet arrived. He says it another way in verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So implication one for my heart and for your heart today, if we want to press on without regret, we must humbly embrace the dying to live principle. Humbly embrace the dying to live principle. Some would call, call that one of the significant paradoxes of the Christian life. This dying to live principle that we must humbly embrace in order to understand Paul's resurrection worldview. This is a principle that Paul believes and lives. So he says here in verses 12 and 13, he confesses this godly man who's undergone much suffering, mid-50s already, that his future glorification with Christ contrasts with the current predicament that he's facing, his present humbled predicament. So the this that you see, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, the it there, or the this back in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, is the description of Paul knowing too well that his identification with the suffering and death of Christ have not been completed yet. He knows that his dying to sin in his own personal life is not finished. He knows that he does not know Christ fully. He doesn't possess the perfect knowledge and presence of Christ. He doesn't possess a resurrection body. We feel that, don't we? In other words, he's not experienced that death-to-life gateway that takes him fully and eternally into the presence of the knowledge of Christ. You know, we were at an um, entry-level cross-country meet recently, and um, we were watching some runners, and young runners, some new runners. Uh, and... There were, I noticed there are two types of runners, and sometimes Christians can be a bit like this. I can, so I'm not poking fun at these young people. But, you know, there's a group of runners who are running. Most of the race in cross-country event, are, you're out of sight of the crowd, unless you have a drone, you know, and I didn't happen to possess one at the time. So most of the, 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 the event happens out of sight of the crowd, and what I notice is that there's a sort of measured pace with new runners that out of sight of the crowd there must have been sort of a casual pace happening because they get to that point where within about 300 yards of the finish, they can see the crowd and see the line. And there they go, right? They're just striding it out in the glory of crossing the line. It's all about that image management is how it feels. And then there's this other group, though. There's this other group who are actually finishing ahead of these ones many times, who I notice they are running furiously. They are um, more seasoned, obviously. There are those who are straining with all their might. There are those who I, I can see in their faces they're ignoring the crowd. Sure, the crowd might spurn them on, but they're ignoring the crowd. Their faces are pointed forward. They're running hard. They're virtually collapsing across the finish line. In fact, some of them are falling down as they cross. And I see there the picture of what Paul is describing. He's describing wanting to finish the race in such a way that there's Jesus standing on the other side of the, of the finish line, and he's collapsing through final death, and what turns out to be just physical death, into the arms of his Savior who's awaiting him on the other side, and who gives him, grants him glorification and resurrection life. So Paul the runner, the one who is the collapsing across the line through a dying-to-live principle kind of runner. And I, I ask myself, is that the kind of way that I, I think of my Christian life? Let's get personal for a minute, okay? If uh, 
your friend or your child or your spouse, the person sitting next to you, turned to you right now and said, hey, I just wanted to let you know about several significant flaws I see in your life. Okay? You with me so far? Like, a lot of us would be like the Deion Sanders sort of celebrity Christianity version. Like, hey, you don't have a right to be getting in my space here. You know, like, that's, a, that's an aggression of some kind. I'll def- micro, macro, whatever, it's an aggression, and you don't have the right for that. You know, it's that, it's that I'm easily offended by the fact that you would be describing fault in my life. And yet, in, in a resurrection worldview, I just challenge you to think that we embrace the fact that we're decaying, that we are battling suffering and sin, that we are limited in our knowledge of Christ. We embrace that fact. We, we know that this all remains on this running side of this, the journey that will finish when we cross into resurrection life. We, we don't need to be self-deceived about that. We don't need to be self-sufficient about that. In, our, in a resurrection worldview, we don't get to coast. We don't get to boast. We don't get to uh, express even self-pity. My intention in saying that to you isn't therefore that you would then say, yeah, woe is me. That's not what we see from Paul. We see Paul embracing an already reality of resurrection in light of his current circumstances, and he knows there's a not yet to come. So let me ask you just a few diagnostic questions, okay? These are challenges to me personally on this topic. Why is it that our current imperfections surprise or discourage us why is that you do realize and i need to ask myself this question you realize mike that your spouse your children your friends and the triune godhead all know that already that's not a surprise to any of them my imperfections my sin my vulnerabilities and so challenging us this morning to think in light of a resurrection worldview, in light of humbly embracing a dying-to-live principle, are we those who face up to weakness and insufficiency and need other people? We depend on others around us to help us, that we take responsibility. And the chief act in the Christian life of taking responsibility is to live out repentance, turning from sin to God in faith. And oftentimes, those who can most help us to do that are the friends who are close to us our family members close to us. But I just challenge you, do we invite God and others into our weaknesses and vulnerabilities? Do we defend ourselves for sin? Do we protect ourselves in sin? What are the weaknesses that you most refuse to expose or confess? How much energy do you and I invest in establishing and maintaining our own respectability and in the word words and world of college football our own name image and likeness i find that to be curious because those are really bible-based words the name of god the image of god and the likeness of god so how much time do we invest in that do we humbly embrace the righteousness of christ on our behalf in order to expose who we really are did did you do you do you get the sense that The perfect righteousness that Christ lived before his father in view of his disciples is an example to help us to reflect on the fact that that's a righteous living that we have not obtained yet. So, friends, we humbly reflect on our fallenness. And that should, in a paradox of Christian life, that should help us to press on without regret. We know we haven't crossed the line yet. So that implication there that I'm describing, humbly embracing the death to to life, the dying to live principle of our worldview. We see that in Paul. And then secondly, secondly, if it were just about a dying to live principle, we may lose heart because we recognize there's more than that to the Christian life, as Paul has indicated. Secondly, we have to persist to pursue the glory of this worldview. Persist to pursue the glory of this worldview. Paul doesn't acknowledge his humility before God 
to feel discouraged or regretful. His insufficiencies, he contrasts them with the future glory that he will share in perfect union and knowledge of Christ. That, that motivates him to persist. But he says that here in the second half of verse 12 and then the, the second part of verse 14. Look there with me. Second half of verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, he says. And then he, he continues down in verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, th this verb in English isn't all that clear for us, but it, it has a connotation that's interesting. There's the, the pressing on verb here used in verses 12 and 14 is a verb used in most other places in the New Testament. It's used, translated as persecute. So, you know, when we interact with other languages, I could give you other, other kinds of examples like this, that there's a range of meaning that's surrounding a term that, that presents us a, a fuller picture of what that word really communicated to listeners. So part of the range of meaning here in pressing on is to pursue, to, to chase after, to actually persecute. There's an intensity of the use of this word here that Paul is describing. He's He's pressing on, he's pursuing, he's chasing after, he's persecuting, in effect, the knowledge of, of Christ because Christ was the one who pursued or persecuted him, captured him. And the other verb there, the take hold of verb, is very similar. So let me just restate this. These, let me reframe these statements in words that may resonate more with us. In verse 12, after, as Paul has embraced this humility of a dying-to-live principle, he's saying, in effect, he's saying this. He's saying, I'm confident that Christ Jesus already pursued and captured me, giving me the assurance that he will grant me resurrection perfection. So therefore, I'm now persistently pursuing the resurrection knowledge of Christ, the presence of Christ, because of what Christ has already done to accomplish this on my behalf. In verse 14, when he talks about uh, pressing on toward the goal, you could think of it this way. God already called me. He used the resurrection of Christ to call me to unity with him. And so now I'm persistently pursuing that which God already gave me in Christ. You know, this reminds me, and I know it's maybe a silly illustration, but it reminds me of my little one-year-old dog. And you may be surprised even now that I have a one-year-old dog, but I do. Sometimes I'm surprised by that. But when I get up in the morning or come home in the evening from work, that dog is wanting two things from me in the form of attention, playtime and food time. Okay, that's what he wants. And it's day in, day out like clockwork. Happy, eager. Now, we know as his caretakers, not parents, mind you, but caretakers, some of you, now I know this, this is complicated. Be careful. <laughs> We know as his caretakers that we are not going to fail to play with him or feed him. But yet every day he comes to the door absolutely tireless, enthusiastic. He wants to secure that attention. He, he, he's a, not the persistent widow, but a persistent puppy, okay? If I put his squeaky toy down or fail to go straight to the food container, he's, he's rolling, like, where, 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 where are we here? He's up, he's barking, he's nipping at my leg, he's tapping my, my foot with his chin, he's risking being disciplined, that dog. And, you know, come to think of it, Michelle, I do think actually persecution best describes my relationship with the dog. He's a persecutor, he's my persecutor. But he's persistent in pursuing this prize of attention, affection, and needs being met. And I just say, you know, maybe we can learn from that kind of a simple example. That there's a way in which God desires for us to come to him in, in a fresh interest in pleasing him, in seeking him, in seeking his presence, in wanting to get to know him. So let's let this implication sink in just in a couple ways, okay? Just in a couple ways. First, praise God. Praise God. 
Because our persistent pursuit of resurrection does not depend on us. But rather depends on the only person in time and eternity who is fully God and fully man. Who uh, perfectly, righteously completed, fulfilled the law of God. Who is risen now from the dead. Who defeated sin and death. Who's now seated at the right hand of his father. Who's there making intercession for you and me, who's the king of all, who has all power and authority, who is someone who, I know you maybe felt the strong grip of a person who shakes hands firmly, but you've never felt a grip like the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who no one can take us out of his hand. So if you're a Christian, you have been captured, you have been persecuted, as Spurgeon would say, you've been hounded by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. His infinite power His marvelous purposes are absolute for you as a Christian. He is our true and faithful older brother. So I just ask you to reflect in praise to God for the fact that the the outcomes don't depend on you. They don't depend on me. They depend on the pledge of his life-giving blood, that which restored us from the dead. And so do we trust in that infinite goodness of his? That one day you will rise to the full stature of the perfection of Lord Jesus Christ in glory. That one day you will know him in all eternity, for all eternity, as he should be known. That, he, that face-to-face presence with Christ is before you. I was thinking about this and just thinking that Christ himself, he's the one who can carry the eternal weight of glory. He's the only one who can do that. So we don't have to carry glory. Instead, we can live lightheartedly knowing that he's carrying glory on our behalf. Like Paul says in Corinthians. So first rejoice in this implication. And then secondly, fellow Christian, here's the challenge for me and you. What is it that most defines that which we want to capture? What do you most want to capture? What do you most pursue if, if we asked your close friends and family, what is it that grabs your attention, that holds your interest? What occupies your persistent attention and effort, your pursuit? Now, I know we all have lots of pursuits, but are all of those pursuits, whether they be eating or, or exercise or study or work or television or Uh, family or sports or hiking or biking or whatever the case may be, reading, do they all flow into a stream before the Lord that is helping shape our responsibility to pay attention to Him, to pursue Him? Do they feed into the priority of the presence of Christ, the pursuit of the wonder of the knowledge of Christ? That's a massive challenge for us, and it's a massive challenge for me. Is Christ really on my heart and mind such that I delight in and pursue him and I don't have time, or at least not much time, to agonize over failures and regrets and and disappointments? Because I'm intent on my life being channeled through this, this avenue of the pursuit of Christ, this reality, this glory that's awaiting me, this persistent pursuit of the glory of a resurrection worldview. I see that in, the, in these words from Paul. That's how he, how he functioned. And so, just friends, on the basis of that wonderful security, I, I encourage us, let's persistently pursue, joyfully pursue that already but not yet glory prize that Christ is caring for us. And then finally, thirdly, as we humbly embrace this dying-to-live principle, and as we persistently pursue future glory with Christ, Paul knows that there's a third issue addressed here that in the middle of um, verse 13, he talks about, thirdly, that we need to eliminate distractions to this resurrection worldview. Eliminate distractions to this resurrection worldview. I see that in the bridge statement there. It's a it's a dependent clause, which none of you really care to hear about in grammar terms, but it's, it's a clause that bridges between the humble embrace and the future glory. 
he says, and just let me read verses 13 and 14 for you again. He says it this way. He says, brothers, I do not consider, and that could be brothers and sisters in this context, by the way. Brothers, sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, this is the part that is the bridge. That, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That dependent clause there is this statement about Paul's intention to eliminate distractions as he looks forward toward the glory of Christ. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He's committing and committing to ruthlessly eliminate distractions to this resurrection worldview, to, to strain forward toward the prize, that glorious day. How do we know that? How am I drawing that idea out, okay? Well, first in the Greek, it's interesting that there's no, there's no I do. So Paul says, it, literally he says, but one thing. That's, that's what he says. That's the end of the sen- that short sentence, but one thing. As one commentator says, it's as if Paul is so moved as he dictates that his thought is agitated um, and his speech is staccato, his words abrupt. In other words, Paul now, between humble embrace and future glory, he's focusing, but the one thing now, one thing, he says. And then secondly, he uses the word forget. He says, I forget what is behind, and I strain forward to, to, uh, to see what, that which is coming. And, and I tell you, you know, I mean, we all know that forget can mean different things in different contexts, but what Paul is saying here is that he's not going to allow his past achievements or his future uh, or, or, his, or his failures, so achievements or failures, to distract him from being fixed firmly on the finish line, to be fixed in gaze firmly on Christ. And in that sense, he's forgetting as he runs. He's not going to get distracted by what's come in, in the good or what's come in the bad. About 10 years ago in Papua New Guinea, we had the privilege of teaching groups of new believers the book of Philippians for the very first time. They had never had access to this book before. And now they possessed in their hands a lot of the translation of books of the New Testament. This is one that just had recently been translated and they had learned to read and write. And so I remember clearly sitting there amongst this group of pastors who had, were eager to continue growing, developing in faith. They had been involved in ministry for a while at that point. They had undergone already a lot of hardship in their decision to, to pursue Christ, in their decision to embrace reality of Christian life. They, I looked across, I remember looking across at one of my friends there. He had been taken to court with a friend of his for preaching the gospel, and they told them, if you continue preaching the gospel, you will be put in, in jail. An, another man I look at over on this side, and he had been publicly mocked and beaten by those who were opposing them when they came to faith. And then there's this group of guys here who are from another community nearby whose meeting house had been burned down, and they had been threatened that if they ever met together again, in the name of teaching this message of Christ, then, th- then they would be killed. They were threatened with machetes and, and knives. And so I just remember sitting there with this group of men in this small facility that we had built, solar power, a co- one computer screen glowing, a light here, and reading with them the first time the book of Philippians in order for them to be able to understand it and teach it. These were guys who were eager to hear this truth. They were those who wanted to write sermon outlines to teach their congregations. They, they were hearing verses like this for the first time. And, and, and as I was hearing those in Atta again and reading them together with them, I was, they, it was as if the Lord was allowing them to fall on my ears for the first time. Truths like, he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I count everything 
as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, to know the power of his resurrection. I press on. I think about what is excellent. I am content in Christ. God will meet all our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you, friends, that that message fell on my heart as such a challenge because I'm sitting in the company of a group of men who have very limited access points. And yet when they heard that message from Philippians, it connected all of the theology that they had been taught up to then. And they said, wow, that's that's a description of us living out the kind of view of life that we've understood to be the case for Christians all throughout the Bible. And so Paul here, culminating, communicating in prison as an older man, reflecting on a worldview that he feels responsible to, just like those Atta pastors, a transformed resurrection worldview. So I'm challenging us this morning. Do these words confirm our priorities? When we read that we have to eliminate distractions in the mind and heart of Paul, being a a resurrection Christian, a worldview Christian in the resurrection, means that you have to wear blinders at times to distractions, to positive distractions, to negative distractions. We, We need to ask ourselves, what benefits or gains do I possess that cause me to slow my pursuit of Christ? What is that? I feel like that's much harder for us in the West than it is in New Guinea, honestly. Because they have a limited set of distractions. We have an endless number, seemingly, of distractions. Maybe we already have that job we wanted. We already have the house we thought we we really wanted to pursue. We already have the financial benefit that we thought we needed. We already have the insurance plan that would make us comfortable. We already have all the resources, so we can live with the pursuit of Christ alongside of all of our gains and benefits. Young people, just don't feel like you miss out on these challenges because maybe you're a person who feels like, wow, I finally got into that group of friends I was trying to get into. I finally um, was able to get that car I really wanted. I was finally able to get a hold of those clothes that I needed. I was finally able to build that kind of persona and profile that makes me one who other people are drawn to. I challenge us to think that if our inner conversations sound like, well, at least I have this advantage, and the fill in the blank on that advantage is not Christ, or at least I don't have to deal with that hard circumstance, and the fill in the blank there is not humble pursuit of Christ, then we're probably distracted from that as a part of our resurrection worldview. That there's a tendency in which we easily substitute distractions, positive distractions into our hearts and lives in such ways that we don't, those create a false assurance that causes us to actually delight in that which God does not intend for us to pursue as primary. Is Christ and his pursuit our chief joy and delight? And let me tell you, I I am just saying again, this is a big, big challenge for me, okay? So I'm not standing here. It may seem like I'm pontificating. You may even use the verb with me, but that's not my intention. My intention is to challenge us together as a fellowship, a body of faith, to pursue Christ in this kind of way. And then on the flip side of that, if those are the positive distractions we can also live with a lot of regrets and failures, and those can obstruct our straining forward toward Christ. Maybe you haven't gotten into that group. Maybe you didn't get the job. Maybe you don't have that income. Maybe you don't have the privilege of buying that house. Maybe um, you can't wear those clothes, or, or you um, don't have that talent or that appearance or that car. And so all of those, maybe you have in your mind failures in life and ministry, decisions that weigh down on you and cause you to lose traction, to lose heart in the pursuit of Christ. Friends, the only ones who ultimately can distract us from the pursuit of Christ are not others around us. They're not our circumstances. They're our own understanding of how God is at work in our hearts specifically to prompt us forward toward 
that kind of worldview. Um, I, I, can, I confess that I, I very regularly mull over regrets and distractions as, and try to solve them. I'm, I'm pretty good at trying to solve them. I don't always solve them very well. But especially at three, you know, four in the morning, I can work pretty hard at trying to solve those, wake Michelle up and she thinks I'm her persecutor at that point. But I'm just telling you, remember, we can humbly acknowledge fallenness. We can choose gratitude and rejoicing in the pursuit of Christ. We can avoid paralysis from distraction if we are understanding the this, this centrality and the substance of this worldview that Paul is outlining for us. So I'm headed towards closing very soon. But let me just read you these two exhortations from Paul and share a couple of final thoughts with you. These two exhortations in verses 15 and 16 here. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And let those of us who are growing to maturity think this way, right? Because if any, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true, again, hold true to what we have attained. A well-known missiologist um, named Leslie Nubigen describes that he was often questioned about the success and failures of ministry in the third world, two-thirds world we think of often now. You know, these places around the world where the worldviews are so distinct and entrenched that we wonder how can the gospel ever penetrate there. We, I have some places in mind like that. And so people would ask him, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about the gospel penetrating into these environments? And like Paul, Nubigen was basing his perspective on the hope of the resurrection, and, and he would answer the question in this kind of way. He would say to those individuals, you know, the actual question, am I optimistic or pessimistic, doesn't make much sense. Because the resurrection is a fact, and you're not optimistic or pessimistic about a fact. He said, you have to ask a different question. Do you believe it or do you not believe it? Do you believe it or do you not believe it? And friends, that's the stark contrast of the worldview of the Apostle Paul. He interpreted life, death, hardship, victory through the resurrection of Christ. Is that the claim on your heart this morning from the gospel message? Is that, is that, that which crowds out other preoccupations and regrets? Are you one who is engaging with that dying-to-live principle persisting to pursue the prize, the future glory of the knowledge of Christ, eliminating distractions along the way of the journey. I, I exhort you, encourage you together with me this morning that that is the perspective that, that the Lord wants for us. And we see that really clear, clearly outlined in the life of the Apostle Paul. Let's pray together.